Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 49. We will read responsibly by whole verse. <coughs> Hear this, all you peoples. Ponder it in your ears, all you who dwell in the world. I am the richest in the world, everyone My mouth shall speak of wisdom, my heart shall muse on understanding. Why should I fear in the days of wickedness, and when the wicked at my heels encompass around about me? There are some who put their trust in their goods, and boast in the multitude of their But no one can deliver his brother, nor pay unto God a price for him. For it is so costly to redeem your souls, that we should never so that they should live forever and should not see the grave. And yet they think that their houses shall continue forever, and that their dwelling places shall endure from one generation to another, and they call lands after their own names. This is the way of their foolishness, yet their posterity braze their sayings. Their beauty shall consume away in the grave, and they shall and which shall be their dwelling place forever. Be not envious if one is made rich, or if the glory of his house is increased. For he lived, he counted himself happy, so long as he did well for himself, people spoke well of him. Those who are honored but have no understanding 
are like the beasts that perish. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our New Testament reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 8 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is if it when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sins, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. But his wounds you have not healed, for you are strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson this morning is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, Jesus declared, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. We are continuing in a sermon series in 1 Peter. If you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And if you would like to follow along but didn't bring a Bible, there are blue Bibles on that uh, little wooden bench on the back table. You can grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles is our gift to you. As you read this, this passage from 1 Peter Chapter 2, starting in verse 18. The way it starts, it sounds like just a list of stuff to do. It sounds like a list of commands. And, and, and if, you, if you aren't reading this letter as, as one thing from the beginning to end, it can, 
it can just sound like a list of rules. But everything that we're reading today is based on everything that's come before it and all of our passages for the last couple weeks. And everything that Peter is talking about here is grounded in the idea that Jesus is the servant who gave himself for us. That Jesus is the one who left the gates of heaven, who left the, the, the comforts of heaven and humbled himself, becoming a man, and so that we could then be resurrected as he was resurrected. And so there's absolutely nothing wrong with making application. And that's basically what Peter is doing here. He's giving instructions on godly living based on all the stuff that's come before it. So if you want a holistic view of life, if you want to believe that, that following Christ is more than just our private faith that we do in a church on Sunday and then maybe you know in our homes during the week, that idea, by the way, is about 200 years old and at most and would have had absolutely no connection to the early church that Peter's writing to. You know, the idea that, that there's your public life and your private faith, like that's just, that's just not in view for these first and second generation followers of Christ who were giving up everything to follow Jesus. So if you buy into the idea that our entire life is supposed to be lived under the banner of Christ, then, then it's good to think about how the truths of who God is could affect every aspect of our life. And so this part in 1 Peter is, is a section known as the household code, or the oikonomia is the Greek word for it. Um, and it's the law of the house. Namos means house, and oikos, or namos means law, and oikos means house. So the oikonomia is the, the rule of the house, the household code. And the cool thing is Peter did not invent this. The idea of, of a household code was something that was well-known in the Greco-Roman world. It was, it was done at various times, and it was, it, was always, um, it, it was always stated with the underlying philosophy or religion of the Roman Empire at that time. And so Peter didn't invent this thing that he's gonna be, we're going to be spending the next two weeks on. He just repurposed this this commonly used household code, and he used it to speak into a Christian worldview. And this isn't even actually the only place in the New Testament where this shows up. Um, Paul gives a version of this in the book of Ephesians. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, last summer, I preached through Ephesians, and we spent about three weeks in the Ephesians version of this household code. But, like, realistically, our church is so different now than it was a year ago that most of you didn't hear that. And so for those who did, um, hopefully this won't feel like just a repeat of something that you've heard before because Peter actually puts a pretty different emphasis on this stuff than Paul did. Um, in the Ephesians household code, Paul was concerned with grounding everything in, how, in Christ's love for us, and so therefore, how should we love one another? He says that we should submit to one another out of love in the same way that Christ loved his church. And Peter has a kind of different take on how we're to live our lives. Peter is calling for a bold submissiveness, even if it causes us to suffer, in the same way that Christ suffered for us. So if Ephesians is about the, the twin calls on the church to pursue unity and holiness together, 
First Peter is about the church embracing their identity as new creation people and pursuing God's mission together into this, into this world. And so Peter, wants to, Peter basically wants to indicate that, that even the suffering that we go through in our life actually has a kingdom aspect to it. It has a missional aspect to it. The suffering that we endure as followers of Christ is one of the clearest ways the kingdom of God advances. This was true in Jesus' day. It was true in the days of the early church. true today. And it's not hard to figure out where Peter might have got that idea. Um, for three years, he was following Jesus around as one of his disciples. And Jesus said several times in, in Matthew 16 or in, in Luke 9, he said, anyone who tries to save his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. So, suffering on behalf of Christ is one of the, is one of the ways that the church goes forward. So let's talk about what all this means, this servant and master stuff. In the very beginning, in verse 18, Peter uses a word that might be translated as household slave or household servant. Um, it's oikotai. And a, a modern way of thinking about this might be to think about it as employees and employers. And that's really helpful to think about because otherwise we have no connection to this passage. This is just kind of a historical artifact of something that someone wrote once, but, you know, the idea of slaves and masters is not really in our parlance today. So a good way to think about this in terms of the household servant is employees and employers. And it's helpful to think about that because for anyone that has a job, you either have a boss or you have a direct employee or you have both. So it's a, it's a helpful lens to think about how are we going to spend our Monday through Saturday time living under the banner of Christ. Now there's one thing that I want to talk about before we move on. Slavery in the Bible is really tricky. It's tricky to talk about and, and passages like this have been grossly misused grossly misused to advocate for the kind of chattel slavery that was in the American slave trade. And so often, in a modern American context, that's the only thing that we can think about when we hear slave. And misusing Scripture, misusing Scripture to try to defend a chattel slave trade is wicked, and it's also grossly unbiblical. Chattel slavery is largely based on kidnapping. Kidnapping is explicitly forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy as punishable by death. So what we in the modern West think of as slavery was not, was not what Peter had in mind here when he's referring to household slaves or household servants. Oftentimes, these would be positions of like indentured servitude where somebody would, would sell their services to someone for a period of time in exchange oftentimes for paying off a debt. And don't misunderstand, I'm not portraying slavery in the Roman Empire is some rosy thing. Like, it wasn't, all, it wasn't all indentured servitude. But this particular thing that he's talking about here almost always was. And it's how the empire functioned at that, at that time. N.T. Wright said that the New Testament writers could no more imagine a world without slavery than we could imagine a world without electricity. So much of the way our world works depends on electricity for lights and heating and air conditioning and refrigeration. So many things that we take for granted would simply be impossible 
without electricity. And in that same way, the Roman society that the New Testament was written in would have been impossible to imagine without slaves and servants taking a vital place in most Roman households. And so in this area, at least, Peter is not saying that we are going to rewrite the way that the world works and start from scratch. Remember, he was painting a picture of how life works when the citizens of the kingdom of God act like kingdom citizens. When the citizens of who are this part of this royal priesthood act like a kingdom of priests. And part of that is following the pattern of the king, no matter how nuts it may look to the outside world. And so we know that in that kingdom, in that kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, everyone calls upon the name of Jesus will be liberated from every form of bondage and slavery when Christ comes back. But in the world that existed back then, and in the world that exists today, servants exist, and harsh bosses exist. And so Peter's goal is to make application from what he has previously said about our identity in Christ, about the fact that we've been born again into this kingdom of priests. And now, how do we live that out? So, how do we honor God in whatever circumstances we call it, we're called to? Verse 18, servants or household servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust, because this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Then he goes on to say, what good is it if you do something wrong and get beaten for it? Like, what did that prove? It says, for what credit is it? When you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. Like, okay, you did a bad thing and you got a punishment. So what? But when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Right away, there's a few important things to know about Peter's writing here. First of all, and this, is, this speaks to the, the kingdom economics of the Christian worldview. First of all, it is absolutely amazing that Peter is addressing servants at all. Most household codes were only written for the paterfamilias, for the male head of the household. He's the only one that the household code would have addressed because they were the only ones that were seen as being like full persons. Full persons who would have been capable of understanding moral frameworks and ethical imperatives. You know, I, I, it's like you can't, I can't make moral demands of, of, I couldn't make moral demands of my son when he was a baby. Because he's an infant. He can't, he can't understand right and wrong. I can make behavioral demands on him. And those behavioral demands would basically be like stimulus response or like punishments and rewards. But I can't make, I can't try to print a moral framework onto him because he can't understand it. There's no point in even trying. And that's exactly what would have been the attitude to the slaves at the time. It would have actually also been the attitude to most women at the time. And so the New Testament writers, when they address things like servants, next week we'll see when, we, when they address things like wives, this would have been radical, absolutely radical. Because a man, a, a property owner, male property owner and the head of the household, he's, he knows right from wrong. So they can give him moral instruction, but not servants, because they're not really people. And if you, do, 
if you didn't know this, even well-respected philosophers at that time, like Aristotle. Aristotle genuinely believed that there were two types of people in the world, slaves, non-slaves. Non-slaves had the potential to be people. Slaves were property. They were just living, breathing property. And so in Aristotle's system, it would have been literally impossible to show injustice to a slave. It would have been impossible to treat a slave unjustly because I can't treat my couch unjustly. I can't treat my car unjustly. So given that worldview, why even bother trying to give a servant a moral framework or ethical instruction? That was the attitude of the world at that time. So the fact that Peter was even addressing servants is astounding. And so Peter boldly gives the kind of instruction to a servant that would have normally been reserved just for the head of a household because both of them are equal in the kingdom of God. So we get this sentence, Servants, obey your masters with all respect, not just the good ones, but the cruel and wicked ones too. Why? Why the cruel ones too? Well, Jesus himself said that anyone who loves only those who love him or who, who shows love only to like family and friends is just like anyone else in the world. Like Anybody can do that. Anyone can show love to someone who shows love to us. But to show love to everyone, to show love to everyone is of Christ. Because every taskmaster, every single one is an image bearer of God. Everyone who cruelly mistreats their servants is an image bearer of God. Everyone who conspired against Jesus and hung him on the cross is an image bearer of God. And so in the same way that each servant deserves a measure of respect because they have inherent honor and worth and dignity because they are people, so every harsh and cruel taskmaster deserves a measure of honor and respect because of their personhood not based on their actions. And yet we don't honor those, and so we don't honor those above us. We don't honor those who are in a position of authority of us because of who they are. Or, I'm sorry, we don't honor them because of what they do necessarily. We honor them because of who we are and what we believe. Let me say that again. It's not their external, in, it's not their external interactions that drive our behavior. Our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven drive our behavior. Our identity drives our behavior, not the external actions we have. I had a boss one time at one of my first restaurant jobs. This guy was easily the worst manager I've ever had in my entire life. He was petty. He was indecisive. He barely knew how to do his job, and yet he spent much of his time trying to tell us how to do ours. He was unbelievably creepy with all the women on our staff. And he was vindictive. I had two best friends from college. These are the guys that got me the job and then trained me in how to do the job. And it has been 30 years since we all three worked for this guy. And I bet we haven't talked about him in 25 years. But I, I could call them today. I could call them right now and just say that manager's name and they would lose it. And we would do like easily 10 minutes on the phone about that guy. And, and so as a result of how this guy did his job, I had no respect for him. And, and I didn't hide it. I didn't work hard for him. I, I did the bare minimum. I would 
cut corners. I would not listen to what he said. And I looked for ways to undermine him because I didn't want to work for him. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow for suffering unjustly. Up until this point in Peter's letter, everything has been about identity and mission over and over again. Identity and mission and how those two things are intertwined. And This part's no exception. Peter has reminded these people that they are strangers in a foreign land, that they are members of a kingdom of priests called to serve God. And he says that you have been reborn into a new life, that you've been, that you've been taken out of your old life, that you've been reborn into this life of Christ. Remember at the very beginning of this letter, he says that he, we have been given a new birth into a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And part of that new identity, then, is that we are called to be imitators of Christ. And that's exactly what he's getting at here. Why do we submit not only to gracious masters, but also to ungracious ones? It's the Sunday school answer again, but, it, but it's because that's what Jesus did. Like, it's no more complicated than that. And he goes on to pretty much say that. Verse 21, for you, you were called to this. You were called to this life of submitting to unjust people. You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then Peter here kind of reaches back into our Isaiah 53 passage. He says, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the only one who judges justly. Now, it's kind of easy to agree with this in a theoretical way. Like, you can, you can read this and you can kind of nod along and say, sure, right, Jesus, Jesus calls us to a radical way of living. Jesus calls us to win by losing in any measure that the world is going to give us. And so we suffer at the hands of the unrighteous because Jesus suffered at the hands of the unrighteous. And a life of following him means a life of imitating him. Like this is, it's kind of easy to connect those steps. Got it. And this passage works really well for my stupid little story about the restaurant manager from 30 years ago because that was small potatoes, right? Like that, I didn't suffer under him. I was annoyed under him. I was inconvenienced under him. He didn't beat me. I mean, I've, I've had other managers belittle me had managers threaten me, and I've even had managers steal from me. But I've never had a boss beat me. I've never had a boss insult me on the basis of my race or how I speak. I've never had a boss pressure me into spending a little extra time or attention with him in exchange for getting to keep their job. So, are we called to submit in situations that are clearly, clearly evil and wicked. And what does submitting actually mean? Does it mean going along with every little thing that, that my superior might ask me to do? I don't think it does, and, and I'll tell you why. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the passage before this where Peter says to submit to the emperor and every human government. So does this mean that we have to go along with immoral commands from the emperor 
and every human government. No, it doesn't. But it does mean that we have to willingly accept the punishment for disobeying those rules. You know, I gave the example of Peter and John in front of the, uh, in front of the council in Jerusalem, in front of the great high priests, and they said to him, they said to Peter and John, stop preaching about Jesus right now. And Peter and John said, we absolutely, we absolutely recognize your authority to say that. We recognize your authority to make these kind of rules. Can't do it. We have to keep talking about Jesus because we were there and we saw him and we know what happened. And they were willing to accept whatever punishment was given to them. So they actually submitted to authority, if not following every single command. Does that make sense? Like, it's, it's hard to imagine that either Jesus or Peter or Paul or any, anyone who had anything to say in the New Testament would say that we are supposed to follow the clearly sinful commands of our superiors. That doesn't make any sense. But we do need to submit to them. We do need to submit to authority. And I think it's the same here in this passage. The, the language in this passage, if I'm honest, is not the clearest thing in the entire Bible. In verse 19 it says, it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures suffering unjustly. It's confusing in English, and it's a little confusing in Greek, too. So, how about, how about this for verse 19? Because you have the knowledge of God and everything that that entails, we are actually showing grace when we suffer unjustly. We are showing grace to those who are persecuting us when we suffer unjustly. And remember, when you hear the word grace in the Bible, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean elegance. It doesn't even actually mean kindness. It means a, a shockingly unmerited favor to someone who absolutely doesn't deserve it. I, I always like to use the, the speeding car analogy. If I'm driving down the highway at 90 miles an hour and I get pulled over, well, okay, justice means I would get a ticket because I was way breaking the law. Mercy means I'm not going to get a ticket, I'm just going to get a verbal warning this time. And grace means that not only does the cop not give me the ticket, he pays the ticket himself and then invites me over to his house for dinner. That's the shocking nature of grace. While we were still sinners, the Bible tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We hadn't done anything, anything to deserve it. And God did it anyway. And I think it's the same thing here. A cruel and harsh master does not deserve our obedience in a strictly, like, transactional sense. But we somehow are called to show grace when we give something to someone that they absolutely don't deserve. When we give them the, the love, if you will, when we give them the respect that they absolutely don't deserve. We are, in effect, preaching a gospel of grace with our actions. If you're punished for something that you didn't even do, or if you're punished for something that you wouldn't do, doesn't that just perpetuate a cycle of injustice? Well, only if we're looking at it from kind of a, like, that our, if our job is supposed to be, like, keep your head down and don't make trouble kind of perspective. But what I think that Peter is saying here about slaves and masters is right in line with what he said about emperors and governors. And it's actually what we'll see next week when he talks about husbands and wives. N.T. Wright again said that 
He isn't simply recommending that people remain passive while suffering violence. And he certainly isn't recommending that people remain passive when they see others suffering. What he's urging people, what Peter is urging people to realize is that somehow, strangely, the sufferings of the Messiah are not only the means by, we are, by which we ourselves are rescued from our own sin, they are the means, when extended through the life of his people, by which the whole world itself brought to a new place. Hard to believe. And it looks to many as though it's just a clever way of not confronting the real issue. Like, but Peter believes that the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth was and is the point around which the rest of history turns. Somehow, he is saying, we must all see the unjust suffering of God's people as caught up, as somehow a part of, and an extension of, the suffering of his Son. Suffering of Christians is oftentimes, as I said before, how the kingdom of God expands. And so our suffering, like every single other thing in this letter that Peter is talking about, our suffering, because it's wrapped up in our identity as, as ambassadors, kingdom citizens, our suffering actually has a missional component to it. Because it's not just formative for us. This is not just Peter saying, if you suffer, you will then be able to understand the suffering of Christ better, and you will, you will come to a fuller, fuller knowledge and love of him. That's true, but that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is something actually bigger than that. What he's saying here is that the suffering is not just formative for us, it's formative for the whole world. When we stand up for what is right, and yet, at the same time, submit to unrighteous authorities, that will look so nuts to the world, it'll look so backwards to the world, that, that people will have no choice as to look at us and say, what do they know that I don't? So we have this missional posture, humbling ourselves, and that comes out of our identity as people who are born again into a living hope. We're called to behave this way not because of its practical benefits or because of any transactional reward that we will get in this lifetime because we almost surely won't. We're called to behave this way because it's who we are. And we are who we are because of who Christ is. So when Peter was writing out the household code, he starts with servants, people that nobody else would have thought to talk to. So not only were they identified at all, they were identified first. And I don't think that's an accident. Theologian Karen Jobes, she wrote a wonderful commentary on 1 Peter, and she said, Peter is showing that the servant, the slave, often considered to be the lowliest and most vulnerable person in Roman society, is actually the paradigm, or that, that is the model, for Christian behavior, for, for the Christian believer who follows Jesus. We give honor to those who don't deserve it, because Jesus gave honor to those who don't deserve it. We suffer at the hands of the unjust because Jesus suffered at the hands of the unjust. And we follow Christ, this, this suffering servant who leads the way. And this is exactly what Peter's talking about at the end of this passage when he's wrapping everything up in the life of Christ. Verse 23. For when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you, Peter's saying this to his audience, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in this passage, what do we need to fear at the hands of earthly overseers when we are servants to the true overseer, the one righteous master? As Christians live out their status as a a royal priesthood, citizens from another country, our behavior will, will look, or at least it should start to look, in stark contrast to how the world works. So we will likely begin to look different from those around us. And as the writer Miroslav Volf said, when it comes to how Christians look to the surrounding world, to our friends and our co-workers, especially here, our co-workers, Volf said, we cannot overestimate the kind of estrangement that a Christian way of life will bring. That's important to remember. We cannot overestimate the kind of estrangement that a Christian way of life brings. One of the reasons why when Peter writes these letters, he's always writing to y'all. Second person, plural. Because he's writing to a group of believers. He's writing to a group of believers who worship together and feast together and love together and work together. Because these groups need to stay together, especially as their life begins to, as they more and more follow Christ, their life begins to more and more be estranged from what the world looks like. The upside down and radical nature of the kingdom. The kingdom advances by our submission. The kingdom gains victories when we actively pray for those who don't like us. The kingdom gains victories when we actively pray for our enemies and those who would hurt us. And it is tiring sometimes. It is tiring to think in those kind of terms. But Jesus didn't say it was going to be easy. He said the road is narrow and hard. But he also said, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an absolutely radical way to live. How strange that will look to those around us when we, when we put others, even, even harsh taskmasters who lord it over us, when we put others in front of ourselves, when we actually seek their good rather than our own, the powerful witness to the world about the confidence that we have within us and where our true citizenship lies. And when we really trust that everything we have everything we need in this life we already have in Jesus, when we realize that He is our true rest, it energizes us for the work that He gives us to do. And so when we, when we come together as His people, when we, as we worship our way through the world, we remind one another about the new birth that we have been given into the living hope that is Christ. When we come to His table, when He meets us there, and provides for us as a shepherd provides for his sheep. We are strengthened to act out his grace by submitting in the same way that he submitted. It is not easy. The life that we are called to, it's following the life of Christ. Let's pray.
God, we ask you to make us faithful servants of you. Redeem our actions for the times when we don't. God, may the times when we, when we suffer actually strengthen us, knowing that Christ also suffered. May the times that we suffer actually be the moments where your kingdom expands slightly, where light is pushed out into the darkness more. And give us energy, Lord, because the way that you call us to live can sometimes feel much more tiring than the way that everybody else is doing it. Strengthen us for the bold submissiveness that you call us to. And may we live it out more fully this week. In Christ's name.